If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab it. Uh, If you don't own one, there's one like this in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you know someone that needs a Bible, take this. Give it away this week. Uh, We got Bibles, and we want to make sure we're talking about the Word of the Lord. Uh, You know, we we say this so much, but I can't overemphasize this. A lot of people could get paid to stand up here and get you pumped. And a lot of people have been taught that that's what church is. You come and gather so that you can sing your favorite songs and then someone gets up and flaps their arms and says emotionally passionate things so you get all motivated to get through the week. That's just not why we gather. That's not church. We gather because all glory be to Christ. We gather because of King Jesus. We gather because of the baby in the manger, because of the man, the poor Jewish man who walked around and taught us how to live, because uh, that same man hung on a cross to die for sins, that he rose from the grave to defeat Satan, sin, and death. That's why we gather. And so if we're not reading this, if we're not reading the Bible and talking about it, this is a waste of time. Go to a different church. Every time you're visiting a church, if they're not talking about scripture, if they're just trying to get you pumped for the week, they're missing it. Because the only thing that can sustain us is the word of the Lord. In fact, John 6, 63, Jesus says, uh, uh, the words that the spirit is speaking to you, right? The words I've spoken to your spirit and life, the flesh is of no help. That's what Jesus says. And so we need the word of God in our life. And I think we especially need it now because Advent is here. And what happens is we start with the climax of the story. Uh, it's kind of difficult. So next year, if you haven't heard, as a church, we're going to read through the whole Bible. Um, And it's going to be neat. Every Sunday, we're going to be talking about kind of a week's worth of Bible readings. And we're going to teach about how, hey, actually, this is the climax. King Jesus, the Messiah is here. And so starting in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all kind of tell the climax of the Bible. And we we walk into it in Christmas time, and it's this weird thing because we talk about it sometimes as uh, a quick season, a silent night, uh, a deep awe thing. And I think because of the familiarity and because of some of the traditions and because we're starting with the climax, we kind of get disenchanted. We, we get robbed from the power and the depth of this story. It... It kind of reminds me of when I think about famous stories, classic like good versus evil things. If you don't know the backstory, it doesn't really mean anything. If I were just to turn on the TV or I were to open a book and I would just read to you Harry Potter versus Voldemort. Like, who are these people? I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. It's cool that they're like shooting lightning sticks at each other, but I don't get what's actually happening. If you just see like full Frodo and Aragorn charges Mordor and that's all you see, what for what? Why? You know, like Frodo's like, try, I cannot carry the ring for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. That means nothing without the rest of the story, right? So, <laughs> some of you are looking at me like, these are not my stories, right? But like, why does Tom chase Jerry, right? Why does Elmer Fudd shoot bugs? I don't know if he does. He probably should have. He had a loaded gun, right? And so like, if you don't know the backstory behind these things, they don't mean anything. In fact, maybe some of you, Rocky, right? When he, when he takes out uh, Ivan Drago, right? Is that right? I'm, Drago, thank you. Yeah, if you don't know the backstory, that Rocky isn't really a hero. He's just a guy that's super muscular beating up a guy that's slightly bigger and more muscular, right? And so I think when we approach Advent and we're just like, oh, baby in a manger, poof, let's write a story that has a donkey telling it, poof, let's write a story with a bird telling it, poof, let's write a story from a drummer boy telling it. It doesn't mean anything unless you understand the whole story. And so that's when we walk into Advent, like we want to talk every year about how do we envelop the story? And we usually do it through looking at four words, love, peace, joy, hope, right? And we do them in different orders. This year, I think we're going love, hope, peace, joy, right? But the idea is like, hey, what what do these words mean? And how is this a collection of what the story is? Hope for what? Love for what? Love from whom? Peace for what? From what? 
Joy, why? Why do I have joy? Like, this is why we're talking about this story. As we look at the climax, we want to remember that Christmas is not just this beautiful family time. It's not just this, this time of giving and, and, not, and not receiving or whatever. It's a big deal. It's how the whole world was turned upside down and changed. Uh, just like Ron told us, man, this is the origin story that, that can't be twisted or adulterated. This is the king who's come to make all things right. So we're going to be in Matthew 1. We're going to look at that today. We want to look at the story, and we want to talk about love, hope, peace, and joy. Matthew 1 starts off with a genealogy. We're not going to walk all through that. Um, There's a lot of neat things there. So much stuff that Matthew's trying to do with that. If you're interested to get ahead on some Bible recap stuff, as we use the Bible recap next year to go through the whole Bible, go to the podcast. Go to the Bible recap podcast and listen to Matthew 1. She'll talk all about the genealogy and the different Jewish gematria numbers there and all the different characters that are mentioned that are just so strange to be mentioned in genealogy. But in general, this is an origin story. In fact, the word that's used here, the genealogy, it's a word you're familiar with. It's the word genesis right? And so we understand heroes and origin story. And if you're, if you're a Roman person, or if, even if you're a Jew, you're reading this in a Roman world, and you're like, whoa, this is the origin story of the king, the Messiah, right? And so you have all these thoughts imposed in your mind. You're thinking of Achilles, and you're thinking of Hercules, and you're thinking of, of all the Greek gods. This is like what a powerhouse means, because Rome has taken over the world, and we know what a hero looks like. And then you get the story of Jesus, which is just thwarted with controversy discomfort, strange prophecies that seem dead and archaic, and very humble beginnings. Nothing like Greek hero, uh, nothing like Rome's kings, simple baby in a manger stuff. So we're going to read through this. We're going to take a moment to pray, and then we'll be starting in verse uh, 18 of Matthew 1. God, thank you for your love for us. Father, I pray that you would help us understand your love, the the height, the depth, the meaning, the inseparable love that you have for us through Jesus. May we understand your love today. May we understand what it means that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. God, just as your Holy Spirit has always been bringing order from chaos, you've been hovering over the waters from the beginning, and that you are in this story, your spirit is in this story, creating new life. God, I pray that your spirit would move now, and that we would see that. We would, we would have ears to hear, eyes to see through your spirit, God. Thank you for your love for us. May we see you. Amen. Now, the birth of Jesus, same word for uh, Genesis there, by the way. Translating in the Bible is difficult, but uh, same word for Genesis. The Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. Uh-oh. Catch it. That happened really quick. So maybe you missed it. So, and again, you've heard the story a million times. So you're just like, uh huh, we get it. She was pregnant and it was a controversial. But see, they were betrothed, not just engaged. They were betrothed, a deep, meaningful thing. There was all this legal stuff that already happened. Families had come together. They had made arrangements. They had signed papers. They're waiting to come together. He's building a house for all this stuff is happening. It's not just like they picked cake, curtains, and a dress. Like so much more meaningful, deep, life altering things for two families happened here. They'd been betrothed since many, many years into their life, maybe since the age of 10, they've been betrothed, and now age 13, 14, 15, 16, now they're going to get married, right? Big deal. And all of a sudden, oops, she's pregnant. And we read over that because, oh yeah, virgin birth, right? We got, 
She's pregnant, and that's a big deal. And maybe some of you are like, oh, well, I know. It's just my cousin, like, she was nine weeks pregnant when she got married. That's fine, but this is a controversy in their culture. She shouldn't have been pregnant. And so whether or not, we're not talking about the sinfulness of that, the tender, we're just saying this is a controversy. And in the grandest scheme of a kingly story, you don't start off by saying, hey, guess what? There's this big controversy that alludes to sin and, or at least some sort of uh, malicious treatment happening here. But that's what happened. Oh, she's found to be with child. Ah, now we get this weird phrase. Child from whom? The, the Holy Spirit. Whoa. We've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in our church, and uh, we're not going to dive a ton into that right now. But this is a, an interesting idea that all of a sudden, this, this woman who's betrothed to Joseph, is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, good dude, he resolves to divorce her quietly. You think he believes that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit? No. Why would he want to divorce her quietly? If he believed she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit, why would he want to divorce her, right? Why would we need the next verse? It would have said, oh, and they did it anyway. Woohoo! Jesus, right? That's what happens. So Joseph now has this tension. He's going to divorce her quietly, trying to be a good dude. Verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, angel of the Lord appeared to him, an angel of the Lord. And it said to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now he's got an angel that's coming. So the narrator tells us, hey, she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. But now the angel comes and says, hey, here's what's up, yo. She's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, the word Holy Spirit, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, the word ruach, it means animating force, the life force of God. And there's so much we could say about that and how the Spirit moves and it empowers people. And it gives Bethel the ability to, to design the temple. And it gives King David all these uh, thoughts and abilities and powers. And when, when David sins, he says, God, remove not your spirit from me. They understood and believed that there was an animating force of existence. The very breath they had in them. God created man and then he did what? He breathed in them, his ruach, his spirit. It's core to them. And for us, we have all this uh, biology and science stuff. And we've got doctors in the room that can tell us exactly how life functions. But there's something about existence. If you watch someone have their life stripped from them, you watch them die, something beyond biology happens. Something beyond the physical. You watch them leave. Poets write about this. If anyone is ever explaining how grandma died in her deathbed, they say, and we watched something left. Something stopped being grandma at this moment. Something stopped being grandpa at this moment when spirit left. And so the Bible gets to say, hey, ruach. This is the animating force of God. And then the New Testament comes in, uses the word pneuma, and has this whole under understanding of the same idea. In fact, Jesus later on, when he says disciples receive the Holy Spirit, what's he do? <sighs> he breathes on them. There's this idea that this animating force, this power of God comes into people and transforms them. And in this story, you have the Holy Spirit mentioned at a time. Who's in charge right now when Jesus is being born? Who's, who's in charge? Rome. Rome's in charge, right? Right. And is that what God said? We just went through Judges. What was supposed to happen? Israel was supposed to grow and be God's chosen people for the world. Did that happen? Pass or fail? Yes, no? No. Why? Because Rome's in charge. And so if you're reading this story as a young Jewish person, you're like, hey, hold on. Just any Jewish person. doesn't matter how your age. You're reading. You're like, wait a minute. Rome's in charge. There's all this chaos around. We don't have the promised land. Things aren't going the way they should. Everything's destroyed. We're in captivity again. But the Messiah is born of what? The Holy Spirit. Can you think of another time in Scripture 
when the Holy Spirit is present, creating life. Genesis 1. Every week we get back to Genesis 1 through 3, don't we? Genesis 1. The earth was formless and void. Tovu vavohu. And what? The Spirit of God. Do this. I always do this when I say this. So you got to do it now too. I'm looking at you not doing it. you got to do it. Flap your arms. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Right? And then what happens? God creates... This is good. This is good. This is very good. Right? This is what happens. This is Genesis 1 through 3. God creates it. The Spirit of God is present. This is so important to see. Matthew's making a big claim here. She's pregnant by the animating force, the power of God, His Holy Spirit, His breath, His life. That's how she's pregnant. Very strange. Uncomfortable. But when you read the whole, again, this is the climax. When you read the whole narrative of Scripture, if you understand how the Holy Spirit moves, if you walk through Judges with us, you see all the Holy Spirit moves, this isn't that strange. The Holy Spirit does stuff, and it is strange, it's weird, but you also acknowledge, wait a minute, this is how God works. God uses His Spirit to create new life. Something good's coming here. There's a new creation happening, a new humanity happening. Foreshadowing what's about to happen. We have this, this weirdness of amongst all the Greek stories that we're used to, all the, the Achilles and Hercules and, and all the Greek gods, we have this story inserted into this, this timeline of, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like a story of power, glory, and honor. But what, yet we have this phrase, conceived from the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the Pneuma of God. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is it. This is bad. Put your money here. This is where all the money is in these verses. This is good stuff. She will bear a son. You will call his name. Jesus. Say Jesus. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Jesus. What does that name mean? Nothing. What does... Jesus, Jesus is a tricky, tricky name uh, because if, if you've grown up in 21st century America, that's the word you know, right? Does anyone know what, what the word Jesus comes from? Where do we get this word? Someone named their son after them. What's your son's name? No, not you, behind you. Joshua, thank you, Mr. Lee. So, Yeheshua, I'm not going to try to write Yeheshua, but say Yeheshua. Yeheshua. Now, if you start saying that 10 times fast, eventually you shorten it to a different phrase. You know what that phrase is? Yeshua, right? So you can do it in your mind right now. I'll, I'll give you some time. Yeshua, 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 Yeshua. Oh my gosh, David's right. I am right. If you try to say Yeshua, I've been doing this in the car. I know how this happens, right? You try to say Yeshua 10 times fast. So the word Joshua was actually the name being used here, right? Yeshua, right? And what does that name mean? It means Yahweh saves. No, oh, gosh, chalk. Now I'm all thrown off. Is it an E, maybe? Oh, man, I'm messing all this up. That's okay. We're just going to write Yahweh saves. You get it. Yahweh saves, right? Yeheshua Jesus, Yahweh saves. And then when you take that phrase, Yeheshua or uh, uh, Yeshua, and you take it and you put it in Greek letters, you end up with Jesus, which is this beautiful Latin phrase. Jesus. Say Jesus. Jesus. It's so poetic. Say, if you see it written out, sometimes they write E-O-S. It's so beautiful. Jesus. And somewhere along the way in American history, when we say Jesus, we end up with Jesus. So somehow we got from Yeshua 
to Jesus, which is fine. That's whatever. But now you know, you know the etymology and history of that. And it's important because we hear the name Jesus and like this virgin birth, like this, it loses its luster. We got baby Jesus in the manger. We've got nativity scenes, all this. But Yeshua loses its luster. Let's read this verse again, understanding that Jesus means what? Yahweh saves. Here's how this verse is actually written. We'll get there. Maybe not. That's okay. No, we're fine. So one, one way it can be read is... One of his she, uh, the longer version of verse 21 with Yahweh saves in it. We'll get, we'll get there. No, no, it's so big. I give you a lot of slides, guys. Hey, give our tech team a hand. It's important to me. Those guys, man, they, they put up with this. Here, here it is. This is important. She will bear a son and you shall call his name... Yahweh saves, for he, Jesus, Yahweh saves, will save his people, Jesus' people, Yahweh saves people, from their sins. So, who's saving, Jesus or Yahweh? Yes! Matthew's making a big claim here. We don't catch it, because we don't read this language, and we don't care. Jesus, Yahweh saves. Say Yahweh saves. This is so important, because this claim that's being made here is that there is a God who hasn't left you, that he's here, and that he saves, and you will give this child's name the name Yahweh saves. You know who's present in this story so far? The Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. All of a sudden, we just read a few verses, and all of them are present. The Holy Spirit has created this child in her, and that child's name is Yahweh saves. This is the Messiah, and who's saving? Some combination of the Holy Spirit, this Messiah, and Yahweh. We can't fully figure it out. Welcome to Trinitarian theology. Right? It's confusing, but there's clearly something here. And Matthew goes out of his way to explain it. The Holy Spirit creates, and then Yahweh saves. And this Messiah is to be named Yahweh. He will save his people from his sin. We see Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit all collected here. He will save his people from their sins. Why do people need saving? Again, I mean, we're at church. You're used to hearing these things, right? We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about stuff. In general, though, you understand Genesis 1 through 3. We already talked about God created good things, right? And then he gave them to us to rule with him. Did we do good with that? Pass or fail? Yeah, we stunk that up. We rebelled. Why? Every week I mention this. The serpent came. What did the serpent say? You can be... Like God, you can decide what's good, what's evil. You can have it. It's all yours. You can be above it. You can usurp the authority. You can be in control, right? Does that sound like every story you've ever heard? Isn't this written on the heart of humanity to usurp, to gain power, to control, to corrupt, to be in charge? And so here we have it. We move a little forward in the story. We get to Genesis 6. There's several things that have happened between Genesis 3 and 6, but we keep seeing this pattern of destruction. And Genesis 6 kind of puts a, a cap on it. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thought of the heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thought of human heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. The Lord is grieved to his heart. God created humans in his image. We rebelled and said, now we want our own image. We want to be in control. 
We want to be in charge. We're all continually doing that in so many ways. That's the, that's the whole history of your nation, by the way, to be in control, to be separate, to be in charge. I'm not making a statement against America. I'm saying in general, this is the drumbeat of human existence. We must climb above. We must rise above. The whole evolutionary idea that's taught in schools and we talk about is we were nothing and we grew to something. Look what we've come to. But the Bible says you have a corrupt heart. You were created for something and you broke it. You're not becoming nothing. You're becoming death and separation and eternal punishment. I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the word. And you know this intuitively. You know your heart's broken. Why? Why do you know this? Because you've asked for forgiveness sometime in the last week. And if you didn't, you should have. Think right now, who needs to forgive you because you've done something wrong. We all know that we need forgiveness. Even the most narcissistic person in this room at some point has accepted the fact that maybe they've made a mistake and they need forgiveness. We all know that we've got this corruption of heart and this grieves God's heart. Why does it grieve his heart? Because God created us to have a right, loving relationship with him. We know that because when God gives us rules and laws and he tells us to obey him, he consistently comes back to this command to love him. Deuteronomy 6, hear Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When Jesus is asked, what's the most important thing? What's the most important commandment? Oh, Messiah, oh, Jesus, who knows everything? Tell us, what should we know? He quotes Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord. And by loving the Lord, you'll love other people. And by loving other people, you'll love the Lord. Quotes this both in Matthew 22 and Luke 10. This is why we talk about love and Advent. This is why we talk about it first. Because the beginning of the story is that we have a right, loving relationship with the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who created us in his image. And we'll see later that image is love. God is love. So that's his image. But then we corrupt it. Our hearts want different lovers. Our hearts want to be in control of love. I feel like every year when we talk about love, uh, I say the same things, which is fine because I need to hear them again. So if you're sick of hearing them, that's fine. Then maybe it's just for me. But uh, we, we love love in our culture. We like to talk about it. We like to slap it on anything, different bumper stickers, different Facebook posts. Um, love everyone. Love is love. All you need is love. We write songs about it, write poems about it. And, and in general, your favorite Christmas Hallmark movie comes back to, I could say a lot to make fun of those movies. I'll spare you. But uh, your favorite love story ends with, oh, it turns out that love is just some emotional thing where you feel it and you overflow with it and you make some decision, maybe sacrificial, but in general, it's some act of tolerance to welcome differences and hold hands and just be together. Yes, we love each other. But then that falls apart so quickly if you've ever been in a marriage and you're defining love so vaguely because all of a sudden you can't love someone who is terrible, right? Uh, why would you? Because if you never get anything out of the gig, then it's a nightmare. And if they're not writing poetry about you or they don't feel like your favorite Nicholas Sparks character. So in general, love is a tension. And, and we could unpack that all day long. I just think it's fascinating that in a culture that constantly talks about love and promotes love as being the most deep, intentional thing, if you ask someone, what is love? Tell me, tell me what love is. It's a pretty difficult thing to define. Uh, we work pretty hard in our church to define it pretty simply. We'll get to that in a minute. I'd rather read scripture about it. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. I've, did, I've done some breaks on the screen here to kind of help emphasize. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because... 
Who is love? God. God. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is love. This is how God showed his love among us. This is it. This is love. Get ready. Colon, here it comes. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. Not us. We're breakers of love. We're the harlot, right? We're adulterers. No, no, no. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. And he shows us that love through Jesus. Love, love is not love. It's not self-defining. And I'm never going to get tired of saying that phrase because I am in a deeply emotional dude. I'm an ENFP. I'm an Enneagram too. I love love. I'm the guy that writes poetry. I'm the guy that's super mushy. Uh, my wife would know emotion if it stepped on her toe, but that's me. And so we have, I've got 10 times the emotion for both of us. And that's what we walk through in our marriage. We have to deal with the fact that I'm the delicate flower that always has emotions. And then she's like, what, what is an emotion? Like I felt a feeling once, maybe it was delivery. It was magical. Right. And so then I'm sorry, I'm not trying to my wife. But that's the tension. And some of you in your marriage, you get that too. But you have this with your children too. It's like, hey, don't you see? And you're coming from a place of love. We all have this different understanding of love. And for me, it's so important that we can't cheapen love by saying love is love because that doesn't mean anything. We wouldn't approach this in any other place in life. We wouldn't tell our kids like, oh, well, how you feel about it's okay, right? If you have a meth addict son, you don't tell your meth addict son, oh, just I just want you to be happy. I just want you to experience love. It's like, well, I'm experiencing love through this needle and getting high, baby. Okay, stop, because I love you too much to let you do that, right? Love isn't just tolerance. Love isn't just mere blatant random acceptance. God is love. Love has a name. That name is Jesus Christ. Please get that in your head. When I say Jesus, you say kingdom, right? That was the big thing we went through, right? And when Jesus taught about the kingdom, you end up hearing over and over that the kingdom is God's redeeming thing. He's coming to make all things right through King Jesus. And the motivation of that, why would God do that? Because of his love for us. That's what 1 John tells us. That's what Romans 5 tells us over and over in scripture. Because God loves us. John three sixteen. God loves us. When we define love by anything but Christ, we miss it. And so when we look to Christ, we get a very simple definition of love. Love is two things. Some of you know it. What is it? Commitment and what? Sacrifice. This is so important. If, I'm, if we're doing marriage counseling, if we're doing parental stuff, whatever, the reason that you struggle in your relationships that you want to define by love is because your commitment and sacrifice is off, right? When I hear married couples tear each other apart in my office and they're so upset, it turns out that they love themselves, because their commitment sacrifice isn't seen by the person. The other person can't even see it because they're so hurt by them, they don't even know what their commitment sacrifice is. And what they see is that they'll, commitment, they'll have more commitment, more sacrifice for football or, or for turkey or for hunting or for whatever it is. And they care about that thing so much more than them. They care more about their job. They care more about, they care more about she cares more about the kids than she does me. This is the tension. And those of you who aren't married, you still have all the same things. You've got friends who don't love you. They're like, man, why don't, why don't they answer my call? Why do they leave me on red? Why don't they talk to me? Why aren't people responding to me? right? They have different commitment and sacrifice than what you'd like them to have. And so you're defining love by this. They're defining love by that. And there's a tension. Now, when you come back to Jesus, Jesus shows love through what? Through his great commitment to us, through his great commitment to relationship with us. Therefore, he sacrifices everything. He gives it all. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. Why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We're all wired to love. We're all lovers, 
can look at each other and say, I'm a lover. Don't be weird about it. We're all lovers. We're wired to do that. That's who we are. We're lovers. God created us to love. This is why it's, it's talked about all the time. It's why we argue about it. It's why we get all tense about it. We're all wired to love. What happens is the flesh and evil comes in and twists that and says, you know what? You can be like God. Interestingly enough, who's love? Yahweh. God is love. Say, God is love. You're going to stay with me on this. I promise. We're going together. If God is love and then evil comes along and says, you can be what? like God, then who becomes love? You. You become love. Imagine how damaging that is. That sounds really great on a t-shirt and on a Facebook post, but it's a terrible way to live in practice. Because if you're the definition of love, then everyone's in trouble. Because you're flawed. You have to ask for forgiveness. You mess things up. I'm selfish. When I define love by what I want, I trample my wife and kids and I hurt them and I have to tell them sorry and I have to say, we got to look to Jesus because daddy's messing up love. Again, Please hear that. Evil is constantly telling us, you can be like God. And, and God is love, so you can define love. You can decide what's love and what's not love. And then we have no room for Jesus. We don't need to look to him. But the Bible says that he's going to come and save his people from our sins. Another way this works out a lot of times is we get anxious. We get anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. All these things weigh down on us. Why? Because we've decided we are like God and we understand how love works. And no one loves us and we are unworthy of that love because we've decided what it is. So of course we're anxious. Of course we're depressed. Nothing will ever satisfy in that equation because you're God. And you can't bear to be God. You weren't created to be God. You were created in his image. Love is not love. Love is not you. Love is God. Love is not your spouse. Love is not your kids. Love is not your addiction. God is love. It says Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sin. Sin is a pretty basic concept. I think we, we don't talk about it enough. Uh, I think here we do. We try to talk about it a lot. In general, sin is missing the mark. God had a standard. We chose to do something else, and I don't want that, right? Anytime you've seen someone just go against the norm, they break SOP, right? They're missing uh, the original, right? God, they're missing that. Uh, don't explain that, but uh, that's missing the mark. We're sinning. We're disobeying God, and we need rescued from that. But Yahweh saves Jesus has come to save his people from their sin. Do you believe that you need rescued? We all know we're flawed. Who fixes that? Who makes that right? Is, is the Advent story on you? Are you the one who defines love? Is it all on you to say, I got to love my family. I got to make these events right. I got to get these right gifts. I got to do this right Christmas thing. It's all me. Are you the one who defines hope? I hope that all my hope is in these events of Christmas time, in these lighting things, in these special, in these Christian festivities that we do. And you bear that. I'm the hope of this Christmas season. That's what evil is telling you. Are you the peace? Right? Oh, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring shalom. I'm going to make it right in my family. I'm going to, you know, these people are getting divorced and, and these kids can't say, I'm going to make it right this year. I'm going to do it. Are you the joy? Because of what I do, because of these events, because of this gift, everyone will rejoice and they'll be so happy because of me. You can't bear that weight. Look at me. You can't. And evil's going to tell you all day, every day this season that it's on you in some way. And he's real sneaky at it. He's super good at it. He's going to make sure that it becomes about you, going to be about what you want, going to be about what you think's best. But you're not love. God is love. God is peace. God is joy. Spoiler alert. That's where we're going every week. We are wired to love and we will love something. And so often that thing we're loving is ourself and our sin is finding us out. 
when you understand your sin, you understand the beginning of the story, that, that God's heart is grieved, that our hearts are continuing on sin. Now, now Yahweh saves means something because we need to be saved. He will save his people from their sins. Why? Because he loves us. John 3, 16. 1 John 4, because he is love. How will he save us? How does that work? John, 1 John 4.10, you can put those verses back up. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8, we already read it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how he's going to save us. Maybe when you read this, you get stuck on this phrase, he will save his people from their sins. And maybe you're like, ugh, I'm not, I'm not God's people. You don't know me. Like, his people, that's probably the Jews. That's probably other first century folk. That's not me. And even Matthew writes a genealogy, and they're full of, full of people, right? Uh, they're not just Jews, by the way. They're not just all perfect people. Matthew's genealogy includes a lot of people who shouldn't be there. When you look at Jesus, who are some of the first people that gathered around Jesus? We talked about it in Sermon on Mount, but let's go even before that, right? Who are the first people that gathered around Jesus at his birth? Shepherds. shepherds. Are shepherds good or bad people culturally? Ah, uh, iffy, right? But n- not typically good, right? They're down for, they're not wondrous people coming to worship a king, right? They're, they're lowly folk. They're average Joes, blue collar schmucks, right? What, who else came? We, we have three of them typically, but there might've been more. How many? Wise men, right? Right. Wise men. Are those Jews? No. Are they outsiders? Yeah. Are they, are they even Christian folk? Maybe? No. They're random astrologers, magi folk. They gather around Jesus. It's first people appear. He will save his people and his people so quickly, spoiler alert, it's everyone. All these people that gather around Jesus, common folk, broken people, schizophrenics, those who struggle, lame, certainly depressed, scandalous people. Those are who gather around Jesus. Yahweh saves, will save his people. Here's where we go wrong on this, this Christmas season in general. So often we idealize and we idolize love and we think it's what we want it to be. We already talked about this. If you want to go wrong this Christmas season, then start defining love by anything but God. Just start doing it and you will. We'll struggle with that. Evil will make sure of it, that we get off, that we look to our flesh, we look to ourselves. We cheapen God's love to happiness, good feelings of false unity and merely accepting things. And again, that's just not how we treat other people, right? You wouldn't do that for, for a child who's suffering or for a murder or for angry folks or, or kids who are mean or spoiled. You wouldn't say, oh, don't discipline them because we, we love them and they want to be loved by being spoiled. Say, no, don't spoil that brat, right? That kid needs to learn the word no. Right? So don't do that to each other. God is love. And God shows love by speaking truth in love, by saying, this is, this is who I am. I've died for you. I've given you everything. All you need to do is look to me. That's what the the word tells us. Love looks like a humble origin story of a king who's born in the wrong ways amongst a scandal. A king giving up everything to dwell amongst us and then be brutally and shamefully murdered so that we can be saved. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Do you believe that you need rescued? Yahweh saves. Do you believe that you need saved? Do you believe Yahweh? Do you even get here? Because I think that's where our struggle happens too often, that we don't believe we need rescued. We believe we can do it. We can change our hearts. We can modify our behavior. We can do the right thing. All the behavior modification in the world will never change your heart. Only Jesus can change your heart. 
Jesus will save his people from their sins. As we move to a time of closing application response, there's, there's a few things, uh, you know, maybe you're thinking like, man, how do I, how does Jesus rescue me? How does, how, how do I, how do I respond to this? What do I do with Yahweh saves? Acts 2.38, people ask the same thing. They're saying, hey, what do we do? You've told us about this Jesus, now what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't make sense of love outside of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and a whole bunch of other things. Listen, if you're trying to love people around you, you're trying to receive love, and you don't know Jesus, there's a reason why it's, it's not fulfilling. There's a reason why you're struggling. Because you haven't received the Spirit. And all it is to you is a shadow. You're hoping for something you can never fully obtain. You're signing postcards from places you've never been because you don't know love because God is love. And when you believe in Him, when you repent and you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. God enters you. We didn't have time to talk about The whole Bible talks about us getting a new heart. That God will enter us and He'll replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that He'll write His law in our heart that God is going to do it. But you can't understand love. This is why you struggle with marriage, why we struggle with parenting. This is why we struggle with with school systems, any authority. We can't understand love. We talk about it. We aspire to it. We argue over it. But we can't understand it apart from the Holy Spirit entering us and changing us. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This week, think about how you define love. Do you define love by that feeling you feel when you feel feelings that are especially good that make you feel good, good feelings? Or do you define love by commitment and sacrifice? Do you define love by Jesus? God is love. And we know that because he sent Jesus to die for us. Love is commitment and sacrifice. How do you define love? I would encourage you to insert a rhythm. I'm going to get real practical with you. Maybe you copy what Nikki and I started doing. We copied it from someone else. Feel free. Nothing's new under the sun. It's all copied from someone else. Ultimately, the objective source, which is God. So one of the things Nikki and I started doing is we do a bedtime blessing with our kids. And this sounds like a really neat parenting thing. So what I'm about to express to you, some of you are going to be like, oh, of course, the pastor and the pastor's wife does this thing. Stop. We biff it a lot. And sometimes it's right after yelling. It's right after, like, shut up, get in your bed. You know, and then, and then oh, bedtime blessing, right? So we're, we struggle with this, but I'm going to show it to you because I think it's so important. I need to hear this every day and my kids need to hear it. Here's the script. It goes something like this. Nikki or I will look at our kids. Now, we have four of them, so sometimes it's a communal thing. Sometimes I look at one kid. Sometimes we do each kid, whatever. It's a, we say, do you see my eyes? And they say, yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? They say, yes. They say, do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? They say, yes. We say, who else loves you like that? And they say, God. Right? And here's the part that we, we didn't steal. We added this because I think it's so important. How do we know he loves us like that? And they say, because of Jesus. And then we tell them, that's right. Rest in that love. Rest in Jesus. And then we shut the door and they go to bed. And then we put them to bed 15 more times because that's real life. That's parenting. <laughs> but it's so important because I need to remember that the Father loves me no matter what good things I do. He doesn't love me any more or less that he loves me no matter what bad things I do. And I need to rest in his love often because too often I'm trying to earn it, I'm trying to obtain it, I'm trying to twist it, I'm trying to adulterate it. And I want my kids to remember that most nights when they went to bed, 
They were told to rest in his love, to rest in Jesus. Hear me, church. Please rest in Jesus' love. Quit resting in these loves that you contrive, that you twist, all these things we define to be love. This week, look to your family and say, how do we define love? Where am I putting my commitment and sacrifice? And if it's not in Jesus, how am I twisting my marriage to not be what Christ intended? How am I twisting my parenting to not be what Christ intended? How am I twisting my job to be what Christ intended? How am I taking things away from what the Lord wanted? This isn't just good ideas. These are practical ways that we look to Jesus every moment to worship him, to understand what love is. This morning as we respond, maybe during this song you want to, uh, you, you want to give your life to Christ. You want to come and pray. You, you want to repent and, and be baptized. See, man, I've never obediently followed Christ in baptism. You want to come and talk and pray, we can do that. Another way that you can respond is just this posture. We teach this so often because it's so important. You are not love. Your wife, your spouse, your job, it's not love. God is love. And God tells you to say yes. It's like a marriage. Turns out, he says, hey, do you, do you want to accept this? We say yes. We repent and we be baptized. So maybe this is your posture. You just need to look to God and say, man, I want to believe Yahweh saves. I want to believe that you are love. But another way we're going to do that this morning is we're going to celebrate who Jesus is. Because we understand love through not just the baby born in the manger, but for the broken man on the cross, the God man who came and died for us. He bled, he died, and then he rose again. And so as we stand and as we sing, I would encourage you to come get the elements. We'll talk more about that here in a minute, but we're going to go through the bread and the cup. We're going to gather the elements and celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's several things you can look to right now. You can look to each other, to the eternal church that God has. You can look to the Lord. But ultimately, all this is because of King Jesus. And so as we take this time to respond, look to Jesus, check your heart, come get the elements, and we'll be sharing together in the Lord's Supper here in a moment. God, I pray that you would guide us as we respond right now. For those of us that that need to accept your love, to receive your spirit, to repent and be baptized, God, I pray that you would give them boldness to act on that, that they would make the decision to follow you, to profess their faith publicly. Those who need to join the church and say, this is where God wants us to be and and we're at peace with that. Whatever decision, if we just need to open our hands and say, man, we want to believe in you.